The big time stuff that I wish I had The big time stuff that'll make you mad The big time stuff <laughs> Welcome to the Kristen Neal Show. Our, our guest today is Gary Tyler, and um, he's been a good friend of Chris's for a number of years, and um, Chris has been a good friend to him when he probably didn't even realize he had a lot of friends uh, helping him out. Yeah. Gary was the youngest convicted person in this country of murder ever, and was later exonerated. Y youngest ever sentenced to death, to Sorry. the death penalty in Louisiana, yes, and I think in the country. Is that right, Gary? Right, on death row, yes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And um, so Gary uh, was a young man in Louisiana in 1974 and doing the what didn't seem like hard work, but ultimately was very hard work of desegregating a high school in Destrehan, Louisiana, just 30 minutes outside New Orleans. And uh, Gary, that fateful day was a Monday in 1974. For months, that would been you know there had been racial tension at the school, and uh, and it surfaced that Friday at a football game, Friday night. So it was the same way. What had happened that Friday night after the fight, it was rumored that they was going to continue with the uh, with the conflict that Monday. So when Monday came around, then that's when uh, you can say the school the children of school uh, students was coming in and. And as the bus that I was riding on, uh, when I got off, when I departed from that bus, that's when uh, my name, along with several other black youth, was called on intercom to uh, to come to the principal's office. And then that's where, uh, one by one, we were suspended from school. So, Gary, to interrupt just a moment, that Monday morning, following the Friday before there had been some fights, uh, racial fights at the school football game, before anything happened in an attempt to diffuse any potential problems, they called in, especially black youth like you, and decided to just dismiss you for the day or for the week? Well, no, I was, uh, I was suspended for a few days. What was the reason for your suspension? Well, it was basically never cleared, but uh, the principal told me that I was being suspended because I was uh, that I was causing problems in the classroom and that I never showed up for class. So when he told me that, it didn't make any sense. How could I cause problems in the classroom if I'm never in the class? <laughs> <laughs> A very clear contradiction, yes. Right, very clear contradiction. So uh, in turn, when he realized that what he said, he just simply told me that I was suspended, and, uh, and I just told him just like that. He said yes. So that's when I asked him if he's going to write me out a, a suspension slip that I could show my parents. Mm -hmm. he told us, that's when he told one of the secretaries to write me out a slip. And so afterwards, that's when I left school grounds and went back home hitchhiking. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, there's no bus to take you back to St. Rose, the small hamlet where you lived. Um, and so you, were, uh, you began to hitchhike home. It, right. How far did you get, Gary? Did you make it home? Oh, yes. I eventually made it home for hitchhiking. Mm -hmm. And, uh, right, from uh, Destrehan High to St. Rose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I and, made it there. Yeah. So you made it home. How, on that Monday, did you wind up in jail? What happened from home? Well, you know, it's, it's really, it's really, you could say, 
a strange, at least that day was a very strange day because when I made it home, uh, there was a guy that I knew who had, uh, who had just got a job mm-hmm. at a grand elevator right there out there on the, uh, out on the riverfront. And he had asked me to come with him where he could pick up some clothes from his parents' house out there in, uh, new, uh, new salt Pete. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that means I don't the river road again, at least I have to, to hitchhike to go to uh, New Salt Peach. So that's what we did. We hitchhiked right back. To, we got back on the road and hitchhiked to New Salt Peach. So after some clothes and everything, then that's when we got back on the river road. And uh, as we caught a, a ride from, uh, from one, of, uh, one of New Salt Peach uh, teachers who told us he was just only going for his red and white store. So uh, that's how he dropped us off at. So he wasn't going as far as you needed to go, and he dropped you off. Right. He dropped us off right out there, and uh, you can say right out there almost right in Destrahan High, well, Destrahan uh, community. Mm-hmm. So that's when uh, two deputies in an unmarked car stopped and, uh, and asked, you know, where we were going. So... Uh, that's when, uh, you know, we told him that we was going to St. Rose. Mm. So he saw me, and he asked me what I was doing out of school. So I mm-hmm. told him that I was suspended. So, uh, of course, he didn't believe me at that time. So by, by us having bags with us, with the guy closed, and they, uh, they patted us down and, and went through the bags and everything and, and told us to get in the vehicle. So that's when we, uh, they brought us back. To, you know, they brought me along with him. Uh, to Destrehan High School, so when they saw the assistant principal, Smith, mm-hmm. and, and asked him about us, that's when Smith saw me and told him that, uh, that I was suspended from school that morning and that uh, we were not uh, the alleged uh, you know, assailants that they were looking for earlier. Ah, so the police, when they stopped you outside of that red and white store, um, and started to question you and pat you down and everything. They were looking for, or at least had said they were looking for some other assailant, some for some crime that had been committed. Well, from uh, well, you know, from from testimonies in court, they had mentioned that there was some youth that had started a fight at the school, mm-hmm. and that they were that they were out there on the river road. Mm. So I assumed that they mistaken Eric Smith and I as the youth. I uh, see. Who allegedly, uh, yes, who allegedly uh, left that school and brought you back into the belly of the school. And right, what happened when you arrived on campus, Gary? Well, when I arrived on campus, and once it was clear that uh, we were not uh, the youth that they were looking for, that's when the officers told us to get the effing out of their vehicle, and that's when I told them, "You're not going to give us a ride, you know, the ride back to St. Rose." And so mm-hmm. we got out. And that's when we start assessing things immediately and start start seeing the you know the school buses that was coming. So when we re- immediately we recognized that there was that there was a problem. Mm-hmm. So him and I we had decided instead of getting back out there on the river road to hitchhike, mm-hmm. we'll take and catch one of the buses going back to St. Rose. So um, when so when we uh, we decided to catch the bus back to St. Rose. As we was going through the school, that's when uh, we noticed up close in person that there was, you know, that that, that definitely was uh, a big conflict 
because mm. the police had separated the white kids and the black and the black kids from each other, and the black kids was being all ushered in front of the gym, gym, you know, gymnasium, and that's where they was having the buses that were picking up the black youth. So when you were Smith and I, when we walked up, that's when they immediately ushered us on uh, on the bus. Got it. So they they guided you over to the gymnasium, and you boarded with just the first bus you saw, or the first bus you could get on. Well, it was one of the buses that was saw uh, that they was loading the black youths on. Uh huh. Right. And now, once you were on that bus, Gary, what happened? Well, when we was on the bus. You know, of course, they were just packing youths on the bus because they had they had about three to four youths sitting in the seat and some youths standing in the aisle of the bus. So uh, when they when they when they saw when they realized that they couldn't get any more students on the bus, then that's when they was telling the buses to pull out. Mm-hmm. And as uh, buses that was leaving before us, they came unattacked. You know, youths throwing uh, whatever they can bricks, bottles, <coughs> sticks, or whatever. If you know, cussing everything. And so when we when it got to us, you know, the same the same thing. And uh, the bus was being you know halted with rocks, bricks, bottles, and everything like that. And then all of a sudden, we heard a pop sound. Mm. And many of the youth on the bus immediately assumed that we were on, that somebody was shooting at us on the bus. Mm-hmm. So that's when a lot of kids start rushing to the front of the bus. Ah, uh-huh. Yeah. So you felt like your uh, clearly your bus was under attack. There was a mob around you guys, right around right, the buses. Cause, right, because what they were doing was instead of de- instead of uh, rerouting us when they saw that the buses with the black youth was was being loaded, that they was going through that. Every bus that went through that crowd was that came under attack. So, so when it came down to us, we we experienced the same, you know. The same as uh, other buses that uh, that went before us. Uh huh. So when uh, when when everybody just about panicked on the bus, that's when the bus driver Ernest Kojo, who was a part time deputy at the time of St. Charles Parish, he immediately stopped this bus to find out what was what was going on. So when he when he stopped the bus because. You know, everybody was screaming and hollering, saying that they were shooting at us and everything. Uh-huh. And uh, so when he when he when he attempted to step off the bus, that's when one of the deputies uh, walked up and told him to park the bus to bring the bus out there on the uh, Destrehan Drive. Mm. So that's when he got on he got back on the bus and he drove the bus on Destrehan Drive, and that's where he parked it at right there. And- so your bus was pulled out of the line of other buses and put on the side. And then what happened, Gary? Well, that's when uh, that's when a number of officers came on the bus. All right, and uh, they was you know they they made their way through the crowd and came all the way through the back and and that's when they start one by one start taking us off the bus and shaking us down, patting us and and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and that, that they was lining, they was basically lining us up and putting us in a vacant lot mm-hmm. on uh, Destrehan Drive. Uh huh. So 
when it got to me, I went to this formality bench, being shaken down and, and told to jump across the ditch into the park, into the vacant lot. I did the same. So uh, it was my cousin. He was about, about two or three uh, 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 persons behind me. So when it got to him, that's when officers uh, pulled him aside. And uh, when, I saw, when I saw what was happening, I asked him what was going on. That's when he told me that they was arresting him because he had a twenty two bullet with a chain on it on around his neck. Uh, so when I, huh? So he had a necklace with a twenty two caliber shell or, or bullet, huh? That he had made. Yeah, twenty two. Yes, that he mm-hmm. had made. And so uh, when I told him, I said, "That's no." I said, "That's no uh, no law against you having that." So mm-hmm. uh, when I asked the officer about what he was arresting him for. You know, and an officer looked at me, and I said, "Would you arresting them for that? Because I have one around my neck." Then that's when the police officer told me to, to come right across the ditch. So as I attempted to jump the ditch, then that's when uh, another officer drew a gun on me and told me to get back. Mm. Right. So when he mm-hmm. uh, when he drew his firearm on me and uh, and everybody looking and stuff like that, then that's when uh, an officer of uh, uh, Nelson Coleman, that's when he stepped up and he asked the officer what was going on and the officer told him that I was trying to I was trying to jump jump over the ditch and everything and uh, uh and that's when I was trying to explain to him that the deputy told me to come back across the ditch because I had a I had a uh I had a necklace with a twenty two bullet on it. Mm-hmm. So one thing led to another when the officer said, Son, what's your problem? And that's when I told him that uh I have a, that I wasn't his son, that I have a father. And he didn't uh-huh. like when I responded. So he said, I'll tell you what, he said, you on the rest for disturbing the peace. Ah. Uh-huh. So because you spoke back to the officer, defended your dignity, you were arrested for interfering with a police officer disturbing the peace. Right. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I was arrested for. Mm-hmm. Well, it went quickly downhill, didn't it, Gary, from there? Yes, it went it went quickly downhill because after uh several hours of waiting in the vehicle and then when they finally transported me along with other youth to the substation in uh New Salt Pete, then that's when they start to taking the the uh the young ladies off the bus and uh patting them down with female officers mm-hmm. and then with uh with male officers they were patting everybody else like the uh male students. Uh-huh. And, uh, then that's when they came came and got me out the vehicle and brought me on the back to the uh to the back room, and that's when they start to book at me. And when the officer asked me how old I was, and I told him that I was 16 years old, then that's when he went ballistic on me because automatically he assumed that I was older than 16 years old. Ah, he went, that's when he went to cussing and everything. So, uh, and uh, one of the officers who, matter of fact, the officer who brought me to the school, VJ Saint Pierre, he uh. When he walked in, he saw me. And then that's when he walked up to me and he asked me, uh, why I didn't, you know, why I didn't go home as I was told. So I told him that I was headed home until, uh, until they stopped the bus. And then that's when he asked, to asking me questions about what I saw on the bus. And I told him, I, don't, I didn't see anything. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And that's when he's, that's when he's saying that, yeah, you know what, you know what happened on the bus. She was on the bus. Whatever MNF took in us, killed my nephew, he said, I'm going to take and find out. 
So, Gary, when this was all happening, this interrogation and questioning, and it was getting more intense, and V.J. St. Pierre, ironically, the same officer who picked you up from the levee hitchhiking, brought you back to the school, then shows up at the substation where you were being held for questioning. He comes in. He says, someone killed my nephew. What were your thoughts? What were you thinking then? Well, my thought was that, you know, because when all that took place, I didn't, you know, what I heard when I, when I got arrested and I was put in a uh, patrol car, that was, that was a young lady that I knew, at least student, female student. And uh, she came to the vehicle and she asked me what I was, uh, what I was arrested for. And I told her that I, the officer said I was arrested for, for, uh, for disturbing the peace. And she asked the officer who was standing by the vehicle, and that's what he told her. He said, I was arrested for disturbing the peace. So, uh, so when, her, when her and I went to talking, then she said uh, that's when she disclosed to me that there was a student that had gotten shot. Ah. Uh, so, uh, but, it still, but it still was vague because the way things, the way things were, it, to me it didn't appear as though somebody had got shot, even though everything was up in mayhem and everything else. But, mm-hmm. you know, so far as uh, sending the evidence or whatever that someone had gotten shot, no, it, I didn't see that. I see. I see. So uh, they start interrogating you. VJ St. Pierre comes back and makes this allowance that whoever killed my nephew is going to pay. <clears throat> and then what happened, Gary? How, how did they choose you? You're simply there for disturbing the peace, a little confusion. Yeah, I guess he uh, he must assume by me being on the bus and and his early encounter with me that he felt that I probably knew something that happened on the bus. So when I ref- when I refused to cooperate, then that's when he started to beat me. Him and him and several other officers. So they were trying. So they started to to beat you physically. And yes. to try to get a confession out of you? What well, it was trying initially they was trying to get me to tell what I knew, if anything if you know, what I knew that happened on the bus. So when I tell them that I didn't I don't know what they were talking about, I didn't see anything, then that's when they was asking me about do I you know, do I think that I was capable of doing this? And I was telling them that I don't know what a person is capable of doing. Mhm. Mm-hmm. So man, I guess what about me I me not answering their questions and not cooperating, you know, matters just got very intense and, and brutal at that time. Mm-hmm. And so, Gary, your your cousin went home and told your mom, Juanita, that you were being held in jail. No, no, he they had they had arrested him too. Ah, they arrested him too. Yeah, they had, they had arrested him too, and uh, and the thing was is that, um. When they when they transported us to the substation, there was you know the mothers and everything that was being called to come to come pick up the children, and uh, one of the ladies that was down the streets from us, she saw that uh, I called her and she and she saw me. That's when she called my mother. Ah, uh-huh. told my mother that I was uh, I was under arrest and I was in the vehicle. So my mother came and thinking that uh that you know she was coming at a you know, to get me and everything. And then when she asked the officer who had arrested me, what I was arrested for, he told me, oh, he's going he gonna to be going home. He's just, he just a smart mouth. 
you understand? He was just serving a piece, but uh, he's going to be leaving along with all the other students. So my mother, she she stood there waiting along with everybody else, thinking that I was going to be released, you know, in her custody. Well, what your mother says, Gary, that she experienced and what she heard is very chilling for any parent. Um, she says she can hear your cries, your muffled cries, as you were being beaten in the substation. Right. Um, and how long did that go on, Gary? How long did they detain you and, and beat you? Well, well, Chris, it seemed like for eternity, mm-hmm. the way they were beating on me. So given an exact timing, I really can't say that because uh, it seemed like it, it went on all night. Well, Gary, and I... I hear you. And one of the first great uh, disappointments was that, of course, you did not go home that night. No. Uh-uh. One of one of many that were to come, but who knew at that time? So what had actually happened that day was a young 13-year-old boy named Timothy Weber was killed, was shot right. um, in all that mayhem. And... Ultimately, somehow, through twists and turns of fate, you were the one charged with that crime of murder. Right. I was the one that uh, that was eventually charged uh-huh. and tried and convicted for the murder. And, you know, even this day, as I think about it, how could it be? Because, uh, I mean, if you look at everything that had transpired, you know, staying in, and you know, and every my actions and everything been accounted for. How could they assume that I could have had a weapon on me when, when I was when I was patted down by the police officer? All right, right. And and, and how could they assume that you understand know, that that I had something to do with it when the way the way I carried on defending other people out there, you know? So mm-hmm. it was it was all kind of things that was. That was taking place, but you know it's the thing where when they beat me, they they beat me real bad, and uh, you know when I when my mother, at least when my parents had a chance to see me later on that night, you know my mother she she broke down and screamed and hollering because uh, I was basically at that at that moment a bloody mess mm. when it all happened. So uh, did they let your mother see you, Gary? Yeah, they let my mother see me later on that night. Uh huh. Right. Well, and, uh, and that's when I found out that, you know, that they weren't going to let me go home that night, you know, because, you know, they were trying to get me to uh, to finger other youths that was on the bus that I assumed that could have done this or that. So I would just simply tell them, I don't know what an individual is capable of doing. How could you make me know something I don't even know? I didn't see anything. I don't know anything. Gosh, Gary, you must have replayed this story a million times in your mind, how yeah. you nearly, you were home and then went back out of your house, back toward Destrahan with a friend on an errand and how that ensnared you in yeah. some of this trouble when you had had already made it to home base pretty safely that day. October 7th was a fateful day. October 7th, 1974. I can only imagine how your mom felt. Yeah. Gary, they wound up accusing you of this crime. They searched that bus not once, not twice, but three times. 
and found no weapon, but magically on the third time found a gun, right. <clears throat> which had been actually on cross-examination found to be stolen from a police firing range. Right. Yet, out, of a whole, out of a whole other parish. Yes, yeah, out of Jefferson Parish. Out of Jefferson Parish. Uh, police firing range is where that particular weapon originated, but no ballistics tests were done, no testing to see if that weapon matched the murder weapon. Nothing was done. In spite of all this lack of evidence, you not only get sentenced, charged, convicted of the crime, you are sentenced to death. Right. You were sentenced to die. And what was the date you were scheduled to die, Gary? Well, I was sentenced to die May, well, I believe May 1st, if I'm not mistaken. I believe May 1st or May 5th, one of the two. Mm-hmm. I really got to check, but it was, uh, it was early, it was sometime earlier that month, uh, or May of uh, 1976. <sighs> so you're sentenced to die, and the scheduled date is yeah. known, announced. It's May of 1976, right. Gary. And yet, you didn't die. Thank goodness for all of us and for humanity. And you're here to tell this story. What happened, Gary? <laughs> like it's easy. Like it's easy. We could start. We could start with the first night in jail, actually. Well, you know that's that's what uh, many people ask. What happened? And what happened is that it was a time where you could say that that the law, you know, that the wheels of justice stopped turning. Mm-hmm. That's what happened that day. Mm-hmm. And that it was so dead set on trying to find someone. And unfortunately, I was, I was the scapegoat behind it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Gary, you know, I think one of the things I find most inspirational and uplifting about you is that um, having gone through this, you are the most encouraging, grateful, uh, loving. You are um, joy in a very real sense. And it's just beyond amazing to me that given all of this, that you have found such a profound sense of serenity and joy and a love for humanity and forgiveness for all of these bad actors because it could not have happened with just one person. It was in the collective consciousness. It was in the institutional racism of the time that you were sentenced in this way and scapegoated in this way. And you were destined to live to tell this story and to be who you are today, and I'm thankful for that. But, Gary, how did you not die? How were you not put to death in May of 1976? And then how did you not um, die when you were in jail? Well, yeah. that's, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and look at, you know, when you look at things that way, you're talking about a young child being sentenced to die and also having been housed in one of the worst prisons in the nation at that time, yes, people wonder, how could you survive when the odds were totally against you? Well, I can kind of, you could say, surmise that one reason is that 
the men of the prison themselves, they, they were the ones who were able to rally, stand around me to make sure there was no harm visited me while I was there. And secondly, thanks to, uh, thanks to federal law attorneys who was fighting at the time about the unconstitutionality of the procedures that they was that they were using to implement capital punishment in the state of Louisiana. As a matter of fact, several other states that the U.S. Supreme Court ruled unconstitutional in Stanley saw Roberts' case in 1977. In 1977. Yes. But that um, that case came after your scheduled date to die. So there was a stay. And I know ultimately, Gary, you were, uh, the sentence was commuted to life in prison, but without parole. Right. Well, I was sentenced to, uh, when the U.S. Supreme Court came and made the ruling in that case, Stanley saw Roberts case, uh, the Attorney General of Louisiana, along with uh, several other southern states, they they fought to maintain my sentencing uh, because they felt that as a juvenile, I did not have the right as adult, and that my sentence my sentence should be carried out. It's a great irony. Of course, the death penalty is barbaric, but for a juvenile, clearly it's so, and that they would flip this. I remember marching. So this is my first meeting with Gary Tyler. And I met Gary Tyler, not the man himself or the young man in 1976, but we marched downtown New Orleans where I grew up to City Hall to free Gary Tyler. There was a big march. And so, Gary, you've always featured into my, um, my life. From a very early age, I think I was 13 or 14, when I first uh, encountered you in this public space, in this arena, and marching for your freedom. Little did I know that it would be 40 years later, you served a total of 41 and a half years for a crime you did not commit, um, that you would be released, finally, to taste freedom that you had not tasted since the age of 16. Yes, right. And you know when, you know when the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled that that penalty unconstitutional, and that's when, you know, my attorneys felt okay that since they ruled that that penalty unconstitutional, and that my sentence was unconstitutional, that they felt that I had a chance of going back to juvenile court. Mm-hmm. But as I mentioned, that the AG's office in the state of Louisiana. They fought to maintain my conviction, stating that, I, you know, that the sentence should be carried out. But eventually, you know, uh, Louisiana Supreme Court ruled that the decision of the U.S. Supreme Court was retroactive in my case. That's when I was brought back to court and we sentenced to life and that I would be eligible for parole or suspension of sentence until after serving 20 years, meaning that October, October 7th, of 1994, that I had a parole date. Gosh. Gosh. But but the parole board, they acknowledged that I had had a parole date that was ordered by the court, but due to 15-574, 
a revised statute of the state saying that it prohibits any any lifers of making parole unless their sentence was commuted to a set number of years by the governor. So it required intervention by the governor, and that, of course, did not happen. It did not happen. And mm-hmm. uh, Iran is spending, spending uh, 21 years later and you know, in the state of Louisiana until uh until two thousand and twelve when the US Supreme Court ruled in Miller versus Alabama that it was unconstitutional to sentence a juvenile to life in prison without giving them any meaningful possibility of ever getting out of you know, ever getting out of prison. Gosh, Gary. So more remarkable than anything else. <laughs> After all of this, one disappointment followed by another grave disappointment by another. Yeah, you managed you know, to be so cheerful and so uh, so full of life itself. Yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> Gary, you, you mentioned it. You mentioned how, um, of course, Angola, the men's penal colony in Louisiana, a combination of three former plantations was one of the most notorious prisons yeah. in in America, um, and still to this day carries that uh, dubious distinction in many ways. Right. You were there in the thick of it all. What what was it like when you first got to prison, Gary? Well, you know, Chris, you know how it was back then. When you heard when you heard something about Angola, they called it the Ponderosa. The Ponderosa, yes. Yep, they call it the Ponderosa, and and many people knew that. You understand that it took a man to survive the prison itself. And just imagine at that time when I went there, you know, I was young. Yes, I was petrified because I was. I heard a great deal of, uh, you know, bad news about the prison itself. Mm-hmm. And of course, I didn't want to. You know, I felt that how you know. I didn't have a chance in hell of surviving that prison because during that time, there every time I look around, you heard that there was uh, terrible news. Mm-hmm. They reported about a prisoner losing his life in the prison itself. So that news was common. It would come up every so often. You knew, right? Right. It was common, and people mm-hmm. in the community knew about it, mm-hmm. especially the black community. Mm-hmm. And Gary, when you got to prison. You told me they ordered you to pick cotton. Well, when uh, I was resentenced, and um, and they put me in uh, AU, like a receiving center, mm-hmm. and uh, and they sent me out there along on a hoop nanny to go out there to pick cotton. And when I got out there, I looked and I said, "Oh no, uh-uh, this is this is not for me," because it made me thought about <laughs> about slavery how. Understand mm-hmm. how ancestors pick cotton and everything against mm-hmm. their will, and I and I refuse to. You refuse and to pick cotton. Angola is cotton. a legacy plantation, and they had inmates out there picking cotton. You refused, yeah. and what was your what was your punishment for not picking cotton? Well, the thing was that when I refused to pick cotton, of course, they called uh, they called the patrol, and they. they they came and uh, put handcuffs on me, and they brought me to the dungeon. The dungeon? Yeah. That sounds awful, Gary. What happens in the dungeon? 
They brought me to the dungeon and uh, they put me in there until I went to court. When I went to DB court, of course, they uh, they took and uh, gave me, you could say, took some good time away from me. Mm-hmm. Then sent me back to AU. Then they sent me back out in the field. And then that's when uh, they gave me a... Uh, they gave me a spade shovel and told me to dig a to dig a trench. So when they you know, inmates that was before me, they had them digging they had them digging uh, you know, two spades, but when they when it got to me, you know, the man told me to dig four. So I told I looked at him knowing that if I take and dig this trench four four spades wide and the and the people in front of me digging it two spade, then they're going to get me for destruction of state property and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and aggravated disobedience and lock me up. So I was being set up. So mm-hmm. that's when I told them, what you want me to dig a damn canal out here? And that's when I got the shovel and I took it through the shovel in the field. Oh, <laughs> oh, 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 the rebellious Gary was very much in evidence. <laughs> but so, but yeah. Gary, tell me what what did it for you? Because this that's not the Gary I know, and I can imagine I understand it. You don't belong there. They're making you do things. Of course, you're an inmate against your will. You don't belong there. How yeah. could you not be full of anger, full of uh, even hatred for what's being done to you? And yet, the Gary I know is so loving what what happened gary well you know chris at that time when it when the incident happened of course i was young and didn't didn't too much understand the magnitude of what was happening in my life but i knew one thing that i was in prison for something i didn't do and and i knew that you understand that that if i if if i capitulate that that would be the end of me. So I felt compelled that I had to fight. I had to do something to rebel in prison. But mainly it was it was out of anger and blindness because I could have had, I mean, I could have dealt with things in a more positive way at that time. But due to my lack of immaturity, mm-hmm. I basically act out, act out out of ignorance. But, but thanks to the men that was around me, men who took their time just then, to cultivate my growth, men who invested a great deal in me and was able to understand my anger helped me to you understand, help me to really control my rage at that time. Mm-hmm. Who were these men, Gary? Well, they were all men, inmates, right? Other inmates, they were, right? They, they were they were they were elderly prisoners who've been in who've been in Angola for for ten, fifteen years. And men who were who were locked up in maximum security because of uh, that the prison administrators felt they were incorrigible men that was dangerous to security in prison, and of course you know you had men that was there for killing other prisoners, mm-hmm. men was there for accused of killing prison guards, mm-hmm. men who who rebelled against uh, the conditions of the prison. So <laughs> those men was considered the worst of the worst in the prison at that time. And they put you, a 16-year-old kid, in with these prisoners? Yes. 
they put me in and they put me in the cell blocks along with those individuals. Gary, they really, the state of Louisiana at that time, it seems, really was trying to erase Gary Tyler. Yes. And yet, these men rallied around you. Yes. These and very men, <laughs> these very men who, even though being incarcerated in the cells, who were able to set other men on fire with gasoline, mm-hmm. men who was able to shoot other men with zip guns, who mm-hmm. were able to... Uh, you could say uh, uh, invent how to make spears and, uh, and, and you know and, and barn arrows, you know, to uh, to commit harm against other prisoners while in the cells. Mm-hmm. But and these men, these men who were able who who had all this, you know, monstrous ideas about how to how to commit grave harm against each other, these men was able to rise above all of that to rally around to help me to make sure that nothing happened to me while I was in prison. Wow. And why do you think that was, Gary? Well, you know, Chris, when I mentioned to you that that uh, we're talking about men who have been in prison for some time, so we're talking about men who who left families behind, mm-hmm. who left, uh, you could say, sons, who uh, who left their little nephews, mm-hmm. their little brothers, you understand? And mm-hmm. and who was a, who was not who was who wasn't there to partake in their growth at that time to watch them grow because they were so busy committing the life of crime and going to prison and now spending a great deal of their time in prison and now having someone around that around that child age among them knowing that this child shouldn't be in this prison along with, with men like me, those men, I felt strongly that that was a time where they felt compelled to stand, to stand up, to stand up as fathers, as big brothers, as, uh, as, you know, as mentors, men who cared about, you know, young, you could say, Young kids being being sent to prison because it was appalling because they were still trying to get a get a grasp behind the prison sending someone as young as I was at that time. It sounds so, like you helped set them free, in some real way. Huh? It sounds like you yeah, give them they, the opportunity to be free in some way to to show the best in themselves by by right by being there. So in some way, maybe you brought out the well, not the even humanity, but the angelic qualities that, you know, every human has. And that's why I feel strongly that no matter what, you know, what a person do to go to prison, that there's always good in someone. And I was able to see the good that come out of those men at that time. Mm-hmm. They you saw know, in you a younger brother, a son they, they never were able to raise, a nephew, uh, and just the dishonesty of the system for a 16-year-old, 120 pounds, to be on death row. Yeah. Unforgivable. And they rallied around you, Gary. Can, can you take me they to the... around me, and, and they were able to put their differences aside to make sure that that I was all right. And see, that's the thing about it. Mm-hmm. Gary, can you tell me a little bit about that, about the transformation? I mean, related to the vein you're on... Uh, I mean, I remember you sharing the story about you being first night in prison and somebody being set on fire and 
you know, obviously being very scared. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, can well, you take us yeah. a little bit through the mental transformation? Um, you know, uh, there is some part of you, I don't know how to use better words than this, that is enlightened. That is just, you, you like, Gary Tyler is a soft, cuddly teddy bear. Um, and, I, <laughs> and if you met Gary and you spent and the, even one minute with Louisiana him. Louisiana put a soft, cuddly teddy bear on death row. A 16-year-old, yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, well, you know, Neil. But take me through that journey of, you know, <laughs> of, of like where you went from being scared, and this is just mentally, just a little bit with the time frames. Right. You know, from being scared on that first night to being protected, you know, by, by month one or week one, I was protected after I finally got out of solitary confinement for not picking cotton to, um, you know, now where, like, Gary, you're one of the warmest people I've ever met. So take take me through that transition. Obviously, that the warm teddy bear existed well, in Angola you know, too. <laughs> you know, that's a nice way to put it, Neil. But you know, to be honest with you, when when I first went to prison, I didn't know whether I was going to survive prison or not because of because of the horrific things that was taking place. And yes, I definitely remember our last conversation we had when I told you about the night that I experienced. You know, this, this sickening scream and holler that I heard from another prisoner and having to look up and see that this, this, this glow, this flash, and, and realizing that this was a human being engulfed in flames. Definitely that was petrifying to see this taking place within the confines of the, uh, of the cell block themselves and having other prisoners being murdered and you know, and, and committing suicide, and, you know, it, it most definitely, it has a profound effect on, on individuals. And I think that by that time, by me being young, I was still, and we could say, going through my informative years. Hmm. And sometimes, you know, people's experiences tend, tend to make the best of them, and sometimes it has the worst, it makes the worst of, of an individual. And I think by me having people there that was able to keep things into perspective, you understand, know, and help me from not falling into that abyss, that abyss of bitterness and, and hatefulness, because, you know, like I tell people, you know, I haven't always been humbled because mm -hmm. I was bitter, I was angry, I was upset, I was that, you understand, know, I was that person who was easy to, to rattle his cage and I striked out. I was that person. You know, but sometimes, you know, you have to look in the mirror and you see things and you don't like. Mm -hmm. You look at some people, you see things you don't like. You see yourself turning out to be that very individual that's before you. Mm -hmm. And you don't, you don't like these things because when you understand, because you know one thing, that can have an everlasting effect on your life and how you deal with people. So I had to, you know, I had to take inventory on myself and how I wanted to end up at the end of the day. And I had to start changing my attitude about people, about my whole perspective when dealing with my ordeal. I have to realize that, you know, that I wasn't the only one that was suffering in this prison. I wasn't the only one that a grave injustice had been committed against. Mm. I wasn't the only one you know, saying that was doing time in this prison and didn't want to be in prison. Mm -hmm. So I had to take an account 
each and every individual that was around me and what they were going through. I had to put all that, ten, all that, ten, you know, into perspective because you know it's a thing where they already identified and empathized with my situation. So I didn't have to act out. I didn't have to preach to them. I didn't have to scream and holler and let them know, see what they're doing to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to do those things because they knew that already. It was like preaching to the choir. So I had to mature. I had to grow. And I had to start showing them, even though that this is what's happening to me, I had to, I had to mature and I had to go on about, I had, you know, I had to live my life the best way I knew how in prison. Mm-hmm. And boy, did you, Gary? You really rose. And and I'm curious just still I, about the process of time. And the reason I'm asking is because I felt like I learned some of the most important lessons from you in our conversations that I've learned in a long time or re-remembered or was inspired or, you know, all of the above. Talking about that process of right. change in terms of time. We go from day one being scared to, you know, cuddly Gary. Where does that happen? How long does that take? Well, you know, that transformation happened. Well, you know, considering considering the amount of time that I that I spent in prison, and you know, and having this epiphany that happened in my life, uh, knowing people that I know how they turn out, how they lost their mind in prison, and how I could wound up being like them, you know, and I'm I'm looking at these things and having to witness guy guys who were who were responsible for my growth, dying themselves in prison when I became a hostage volunteer. You know, when you go through that, Neil, all of that, it have a way of humbling you. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It have a way of making you appreciate life, mm-hmm. working to overcome your situation. And I knew that I had to work to overcome my situation by what? By working to help not only better my life, but also work to better those around me. Knowing that that here you have young men. When did that epiphany come? Coming to prison. When did that epiphany huh? come? Did that epiphany come, you well, know, first couple months or right away or you know, first couple of years? No, it came. It it came years later. Years later. You know, it came years later and. And one, and one in particular, when an uh, inmate, in, one inmate that I'd never forget, his name was Lewis Singleton. Lewis Singleton was an individual who, he was, uh, he was a military veteran. He just come out of, uh, he spent time in, uh, in Vietnam, and he came back. He, he moved back to Louisiana, and he murdered a woman because he felt that she had cast uh, a, a voodoo on him, a spell. Mm. And when he went to Angola, behind his, you know, uh, his military record, they made him a prison guard. Mm. And uh, and as a prison guard, he was a nice. Okay, he was. <laughs> for those who are listening, Angola was notorious for many things, but one of the things that they were most famous, infamous for, was um, appointing other inmates to guard the inmate population. These yeah. inmate guards were known as khaki backs. Is that right? Khaki backs, yes. They wore khaki shirts. And yep. were they armed, Gary? 
They were given guns and belly clubs. Guns and belly clubs. And um, as we know from the Stanford Prison Experiment and others like it, they could have they could be the most uh, villainous of all the guards in the prison. And yes. Lewis Singleton was one of those villains, huh? Yes, he was. He was one of them. And uh, and you know, and this guy here, eventually, he uh, he became dangerous even for the prison administrators until way they took that privilege away from him. And he, they felt that he was so dangerous until they locked him up in maximum security. And how did the story of Lewis Singleton affect you, Gary? Your story so um, different, it seems. Well, this guy was on a tear with me. Mm-hmm. And, and I watched this guy. I watched him deteriorate. Mm-hmm. You know Because, you know, at times I used to have some very enlightening, intelligent conversations, you know, with this guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I found out that this guy had family that lived out there in St. Charles Parish, right in the community where my family lived at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know, me and him used to talk, but I but I watched this guy deteriorate, and the way the the, the way he turned out, I recognized that I can turn out just like him mm-hmm. because. He was so bitter until it was like cancer. It was eating him alive. Mm-hmm. The way it was hard for him to get along with anybody. Mm-hmm. And this guy eventually died. Mm-hmm. You know? He died in prison, huh? He died He died in prison. I mean, he, he completely lost his mind. And, and, I, and, I, and I remember this guy. I remember him quite well, even when I left CCR and, uh, and I made it down the main prison population. Uh, when I used to work over at uh, TU, no, uh, uh, yeah, TU, that was, uh, that, that was one of the new uh, cell blocks that they made, that they built in Angola. I used to work over there, and, and I used to talk to this guy, I used to see this guy, and, you know, and... And his whole, I mean, you know, everything in the bottom had changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it's like he couldn't, he couldn't get over what had happened to him and the life that he, had, that he went through. Because we're talking about an individual who spent time in the military, who, uh, who served his country, who was getting a pension from the government. Mm-hmm. You know and, you know, and this man was, he was a very intelligent man. He come from a good family. Mm-hmm. And he just, you know, he just, I guess, uh, from his experience in prison, you know, it was so, um, excuse me, in, uh, in the military, it was so traumatic until he came, you know, he came back to the state and he killed someone. Mm-hmm. All because of what? He felt that the woman put a curse on him. Mm-hmm. Well, my wife put a spell on me, but I'm happy with it. Yes, yes. It's only been good voodoo, thankfully. <laughs> it's <been a> good kind. <laughs> but you know, yeah. Neil, but he was one individual that I that, that really you know, that, that really come to mind because I'd gotten to know him. Mm-hmm. You understand? Know, I had gotten to know him and I watched him deteriorate to the point where this man died. 
You know what I'm saying? He died, and the prison administrators they that they were so they they were so terrified of him until they really didn't give him any you know any treatment that he needed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In a different way, we're trying to get him out of the prison population by killing him in a you know a slow death. Yeah, a slow death. Kind of like when they put you in CCR, getting you out of the prison population and in with the the worst of the worst, and right. maybe hoping you would never see the light of day. Right. So it's it's is that along with other experiences that I went through, kind of like you know, forced me to hey, you know, you got to stay focused. Well, Gary, it's more than focus. You know, when you told me the story of your finally getting out that yeah. <clears throat> the young new um, uh, district attorney in St. Charles yeah. Parish who actually grew up with your younger brother yeah. and went to school with him and knew your story very well, promised that he would get you out of jail. Mm-hmm. And you said you've probably heard that a million times before. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, hope never dies. But um, but ultimately, the story you shared that when you finally, they, they moved your case from, or your sentencing from life in prison to manslaughter, and then you knew that you were getting out, that the conversation with the judge who originally sentenced you, that he asked your attorney if you were mad at him. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Clearly, he had remorse, and yet, Gary, you shared with me how you had were so far beyond that, that you had forgiven everyone. Yes, and that's the only way I felt that in order for me, you know, to walk out that prison, I had to learn how to forgive people, you know, and and I I used to listen to other prisoners and how they treated each other. And how it was hard for them to get along with one another, but they wanted to cast, they wanted society to have mercy on them, hmm. because they want to convince society that they have changed. But how could you say that you want mercy and you want second chances, but when you can't even forget your peers, individuals serving time with you, mm-hmm. you can't forget him because he may have said something, you know, out of line, and now you wanna, you wanna hate him, you wanna kill him or you don't like him because of who he is and everything, you know, I felt to me that was a big contradiction, you know? Yeah. And, and I felt that, and, you know, and, and in order to break through that monogamy, you know what I'm saying, somebody had to lead by example, you know what I'm saying, by, by forgiving others, by forgiving people, you know what I'm saying, and not harboring hatred and, you know, and animosity toward an individual. Gary, what you've had to forgive is monumental. And I know from my experience with you and just being with you that you are there. That uh, I don't know what it must have felt like, but, you know, um, there's a book written by a man named Albert Camus called The Stranger. And in the very end of that book, this man is in prison and he looks out of his small cell window and he sees for the first time in his life the blue sky. The, he really sees it. 
He's yeah. never paid attention to nature, and all of a sudden he feels liberated, that he's free. And he's scheduled to die by execution, and so they send a priest in to speak to him. Yeah. And he sits with the priest, but he feels like this is a waste of time. The priest is still trying to get a confession out of him in the story, and he says to himself something I've never forgotten in this book, that this is a waste of time. He has to dismiss this Catholic priest because he is more alive than the priest is. And he only has one day left to live. And he doesn't want to waste his time with this false blessing and this foolish interrogation that he has to breathe and enjoy what life he has left. And that in his heart, he's much freer than the people who are, as you call them at Angola, the free people. The free people. <laughs> you, Gary, to me, are most admirable in the sense that you're not a prisoner of the mind. And I think for many of us, even the so-called free people you saw walking around Angola, that in many ways you are freer than they. And then most people I've ever met, Gary, did you ever feel like that in when you were in Angola? Well, I've, I felt free in spirit, yes. Mm-hmm. When I was able to let loose those burdens in my life, mm-hmm. I felt I felt alive. You know, I felt alive. And you know, when I was when when I was a hospital volunteer in prison, Chris, every every patient that I took, you know, that that I took responsibility on, I made a promise to them that I was going to be there for them. You understand? That I wasn't going to abandon them. You understand? Whenever they need me, I would be there for them. Mm-hmm. Understand? Because I knew one thing that, you understand, that these individuals are only with us, you understand, for a short period of time. And once they go, that was going to be it. And But I knew one thing. I wanted those individuals to know that they had my support and they had my love. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about, I said, with people that I didn't even know that were strangers that they bought from other institutions. But at the end of the day, we were friends mm. because I valued life. How long were you a hospice volunteer in Angola, Gary? I was a hospice volunteer for 17 and a half years. Wow. Wow. You know, and, and, as, and as a volunteer, you had some of the men who came through that program that, that put, you know, that are... Uh, that that participated in my growth in prison, that I that I sat with, and who was, and who told me how proud they were of me. And, and we and we are talking about men that was when you first saw them when I went to prison, they were big men, they was intimidating men, they were men who had who had hell of a reputations in prison, even at I mean. Even I was afraid of because I mean the way the way they looked and the way they act. But they were they were they were good men. They had good heart, and I say that personally because they the one who was who was able to at least who was willing to put their lives on the line to make sure that nothing happened to me. And then you got to return the favor in hospice, helping many of these same men who looked out for you when you were in CCR. Yeah. To help have give them grace before dying, huh? Yes, grace before dying. 
And Grace Before Dying is the name of a quilt that you built with some of these dying inmates. Isn't that right, Gary? Right, Grace Before Dying is a program that, yes, that uh, that we did a quilt that was, that was being toured around the country, right, with displays about uh, the program itself, mm-hmm. the program in Louisiana State Penitentiary. So aside from hospice volunteers, 17 and a half years, you... Um, participated in this quilt-making program, and some of the quilts are quite beautiful, Gary, and you did that yeah. for many years with a, a group of inmates. Right. Right? And, yes. and also you pioneered the theater program there in Angola. Yep, uh, the Drama Club. The Drama Club. And you shared with me how you had men who couldn't write, read or write, but eventually wanted to do some script writing for you, right? Right. Well, you know, one thing I recognized that drama was 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 a vehicle of expression mm-hmm. that people can really understand, mm-hmm. be themselves, and feel free and alive and creative. Mm-hmm. And we created an atmosphere in an organization where, no matter who you are, where you come from, that you could come to the drama club and you can be a part of an you can be a part of a group of men who was who was all about progress. And we didn't care whether you was, you understand, whether you couldn't read or write, mm-hmm. because in due time, we know that if we're able to cop, you know, captivate your attention and keep you coming to the organization, eventually you was going to learn something by sitting back and listening and seeing what other people do. And that, and that itself inspired men that couldn't read and write who wanted to read and who wanted to write. You understand? Yeah. And and, and manage through through the process to write skits on their own. Mm. To do monologues. Yeah. Because they was in they was in a place of being that they felt comfortable in. It's amazing, Gary, that you could create that environment in such an oppressive right. Uh, prison. In such an oppressive place. Let alone yeah. outside, that would be very amazing. Well, Gary, you eventually grew in there and became a first-class trustee. Yeah. And so you were um, actually allowed to leave prison to help in community service and clean up after things like Hurricane Katrina. Right. Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Rita. Uh-huh. Right. And uh, Hurricane Andrews. Uh huh. So you know we we able to go to uh you know schools and uh do little different works and and uh you know we we basically moved around the state we did different jobs prison outreach. Now Gary, this is going to sound like a weird question. Yeah. <laughs> what do you miss about Angola? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't miss being there. I can tell you that now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I miss the guys, okay? Because, uh, because you know, we all became family. Mm-hmm. And uh, to watch their faces when I left that day, I can never forget that. Mm-hmm. You understand? Because, you know, I, I I look at the time that we spent together and the transformation that I saw in these guys that these guys, they changed their lives because 
they were in a place that they that they wanted to be. And I was instrumental in that. And now having to leave, and, you know, it, it was saddened. And, you know, see grown men cry, weep. I mean, that says a lot. And also in having those men who that, many of them that I basically have you know, watched grow in prison tell me that if there were people who invested in them, who took their time and listened to them and was there for them, that many of them wouldn't be in prison today. These are the men that, that have been missing in action mm-hmm. to partake in the growth of their children and their community. It's really amazing, Gary. And you um, continue to lead. <clears throat> I mean, I feel it. Are you doing... Um, now, you're, you're going back to Angola periodically. Right. And you see these men that you were mentoring and some who worked with you on all these different projects in the theater, in the uh, hospice volunteer program. Right. Are they still continuing the quilt making? Yes, they continue the quilt making. They are... Hospice is still going strong because this is, you know, the prison cannot do without that because this, I mean, this gives, you know, it, it gives a place for those who are dying where they can be able to go and have a quality of life. And I, and I think that that was one of the most, you know, meaningful things that was implemented in the prison, a hospice program. Mm-hmm. Because at one time, you know, it took the act of Congress to be able to go visit a friend, someone that you knew over there, and, uh, uh, you know, an infirmary, because they was, you know, they just didn't allow inmates to just go over there. Mm-hmm. And, and I knew people who died that I didn't even see once they once they went over there on the ward. Mm. Mm-hmm. So now it's a thing where inmates... They have a visiting list, and they can put down who they want to visit, or they can go to a they can go to a, any, any prison official, and get permission to go over there and see an inmate. See, they encourages that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and that's good. So yeah. you know, it's a thing where, you know, uh, a lot of things that that was implemented, and that I you know and, and uh, uh, that I left prison, it's still it's still going on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's still yeah. going on because it's a thing where that will kept me motivated and that will keep a whole lot of other men motivated. And that's why, you know, like uh, next month, I'm going to be going to Texas prison to talk to a guy named Christopher Young, uh, who's scheduled to be executed July the 18th. And uh, in the state of Texas, in the state of Texas. Uh huh. And you're going to go meet with him, Gary? I'm gonna go. Yes, I will. Yeah, I would be going there to meet with him mm-hmm. to talk to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's looking forward to seeing me. And and his attorneys and friends felt that, you know, that I would be the ideal person to talk to him because I know how I feel to be on death row. Mm-hmm. I know how I feel to be in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so it's a damn way. You know, he's he's you know he's someone that uh, I think he's remarkable. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he admit that he's, he did what he's in prison for. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he had, you know, he wasn't making any excuses or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he's guilty of the crime for which he's accused, but, uh. Yeah, he's guilty of it. 
but you know, I feel I feel strongly that he can be an asset. Mm-hmm. Any any person in prison could be an asset to the young men and women who uh, who go to prison because even though they may you know they probably forfeit their freedom of being ever being ever on the streets, but I think that they can really help those that go to prison. That they can guide them to make sure that they don't make the same mistake that they made when they were in prison. Mm-hmm. You understand know that they can that you know stand to lead them down to a righteous and positive path of doing mm-hmm. good in prison. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if prisoners, if prisoners could be mentor to young prisoners that come to prison, then you know when individuals ev- eventually released from prison, then they can be a, a reckoning force within our community. Because I tell men in prison that they have a responsibility, and that responsibility is to better themselves and to prepare themselves for whenever they are released, that they can go out and make a difference. Yeah. Yeah, it seems the consciousness of America vacillates from punishment to rehabilitation or the belief in some rehabilitation and then back to pure punishment. You know, Chris, I, I mean, Gary, you experienced that. The vacillation of humanity regularly throughout history. Yeah. I don't think that this is just yeah. America unique in this moment. Yeah. 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 I mean, our 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 prison system was originally supposed to be rehabilitation, but very often turns punitive. And Gary, you even were just close to getting a paralegal degree when the funding for that was taken away. Yep. By Jesse Helms and Strom Thurmond. Strom Thurmond. It was taken away. But, you know, even though uh, it made it hard for you to get an education, to get a degree, but, you know, you doesn't, you know, you don't stop. You got to continue to endeavor no matter what. Because there's going to be obstacles in your life that you got to work to overcome. <laughs> Even if it takes 41 and a half years. Even if it takes 41 and a half years. And people say, how did you do it? One day at a time. <laughs> I, I, don't, yeah. I don't think we can find a better ending than that. One day at a time. How'd you do it? How'd you do it? Yeah. Right. How'd you do it? Yeah. Yep. So, so, you know, my humbleness come from what I've experienced in prison. I was able to utilize that to make well, stand to make the best out of it. And you know that saying about making the best out of a worse situation? Mm-hmm. Well, that's what happened in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I appreciate life to the fullest. Mm-hmm. Well, Gary, you are really a wonderful man. I mean, you're amazing. I think about it, and the after what you've been through, to have given forgiveness to everyone, even the judge who felt clearly he didn't deserve it, but wanted yeah. your forgiveness. Was there anyone you had trouble forgiving? Did you say, oh, that David Duke guy, I got to work on this one a little longer? Or did it all come sort of easy once you decided that this was your path forward? Well, you know, it's it's a thing where there's some, there's some people that, you know, you don't have to you don't have to vocally forgive them. In due time, you understand, you eventually forgive all the you know, the wrongdoings of other people. And I look, you know, like I like I talk to people and they ask me, Why you? You know, why mm-hmm. not me? Because other people ask people, Why you? You understand? Nelson Mandela, he got the question, Why you? Mm-hmm. Uh Mahatma Gandhi got the question, Why you? Mm-hmm. You understand? 
And and you know, and, and why not them? Because at that at that moment it was their time. Mm-hmm. And what they did was that despite everything they went through, they came out with a they, they came out with a loving heart and they made a difference. When Nelson Mandela left left prison, you understand? Know he could have I mean he, he could have took a, a wicked road, but no, what he did he thought that truth and reconciliation was the only way to start the process of healing in South Africa. Oh, we can use it here today, can't we, Gary? Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, that's beautiful, Gary. And I want to say thank you very much for sharing your story with all of us. We're really grateful. Yeah, and this extra time, Gary, it's been so valuable for me. Just I can't hear it enough. Um, yeah, and just knowing you, knowing what you've been through, and how how golden your heart is, my brother, I am very, very honored to have you on this call. Thank you. All right, thank you. 